0: Well, this evening we come to Revelation chapter 21 and we are certainly making our way through the book and closing down now as we get closer to the end. The last two chapters of Revelation I find to be absolutely fascinating. And as much detail as we are given within the text itself, there is still a mystery and a wonder to it all. So as we begin to look at these last two chapters together, this evening we'll be looking at chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Let us not lose that sense of awe and wonder for that which is still yet to come. Let's begin by reading chapter 21, verse 1. And Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers and the sexually immoral, The sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The title of the message this evening is The New Heaven and the New Earth. Undoubtedly, at one time or another, you've heard someone use the expression, this is like heaven on earth. Maybe it's been after a fine meal or a great vacation or just an amazing evening with friends and family and you just come to the conclusion this is a glimpse of heaven on earth. Now we say that not literally, but we say that in remembrance of, but let us understand that one day there will be heaven on earth because a new world is coming. One day heaven is going to come down to earth. Have you ever used the expression out with the old and in with the new? Many believe that that expression, that saying came from these passages. That the old is passing away, the new is here. And as Chuck Swindoll said, if he could sum up these next two chapters, it would be as this. I could state it this way, he says. In fact, it is the climax of the entire book of Revelation. Out with the old, And in with the new. Let me ask you a question. As a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, one who professes faith in Christ, how often do you think of eternal life throughout the course of your day? How often do you think of heaven? And when I say that, I'm speaking of the heaven that is still yet to come the new heaven, the new earth, the eternity with God. How often do you think about it as a believer in Jesus Christ throughout the course of your day? Sometimes it's difficult, isn't it? It's, the, it's difficult to have your mind set on heaven and those things that are still yet to come when you have so many responsibilities that occupy you at the moment here in this day, in this world. Sometimes it's more difficult to think that far ahead. How many of you say to yourself at times when things may get difficult that you're looking forward to heaven? When you state that, it's not that you should only be thinking of what heaven will be like and your enjoyment once you get there, but thinking forward to heaven, looking forward to heaven, I would hope would also ask yourself to govern your current decisions by eternity. What do I mean by that? The decisions you make today echo throughout eternity. When Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasures are, that's where your heart shall be. That's what he is stating to us. Think forward. Think eternally. It's only in that kind of perspective that one is willing to sacrifice the moment and the temporal comforts of the day to allow God to use him and, him or her in some uncomfortable way for the glory of God. Think about that for a moment. But one pastor asks us to consider something. He believes that heaven is rarely thought about anymore by people, and he wrote this in his commentary on the book of Revelation, chapter 21. He stated, sadly, that is no longer true for many in the church today, that is, their thinking of heaven. Caught up in our society's mad rush for instant gratification, material comfort, and narcissistic indulgence, the church has become worldly. Nothing more than graphically demonstrates that worldliness than the current lack of interest in heaven and eternity. The church doesn't sing or preach much about heaven. Believers are seldom found discussing it. Songs are no longer apparently written about it and books about heaven are few and far between. Believers who do not have heaven on their minds trivialize their lives, hinder the power of the church and become absorbed with the fading things of this world. I certainly believe those are things that we must consider as we enter these chapters together. In the first eight verses we find that in the first two verses we find the things that John saw. And in the last six verses we find the things that John heard. And we begin in verse 1 of chapter 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is after the 1,000 year millennial reign This is at the very end of all things. Eternity is now right on the brink of the horizon. And John says as he's there on the island of Patmos and the vision is continuously being revealed to him by God, at this point he now sees after all that we have come through, The chapters of judgment, one right after another, he says, now I see a new heaven and a new earth. Now that death has been done away with, sin has been done away with, Satan has been done away with, I now see a new heaven and a new earth. The word new there means new in quality, not necessarily new in time. And there's great debate among scholars who will like to consider if the world is going to be renovated or reconstructed or recreated altogether. And believe it or not, many of of books and of chapters have been written on the subject matter. Will there be a renovation, a recreation, or as I like to say, a complete transformation? Either way, if God decides to bring it all to an end and start over, if it's some kind of renovation, I know that whatever is left that God has created will be perfect. Just as God intended it to be. Again, that's what we're getting back to. The perfection that was lost at the garden. That Adam and Eve gave away. Gave the dominion of the earth that was given to them by God to Satan and it is now that dominion that is being brought back under the, the reign of of God himself. There is very little at this point to describe the new heaven and earth. We know that the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So whatever it is, it is a new thing. For the old has passed away. And that word means to go out of existence, to cease to exist, to pass to cease. It's very clear in its definition, and then we're given this other little bit of trivia that there is no more sea. I like the beach. I love the ocean. Do you know that our world, 74% of the earth, is covered by water, salt water? Do you know that they estimate that there are 330 million cubic uh, miles of ocean ocean on the face of the earth, that each year 1.5 trillion tons of rain are expelled upon the face of the earth. Now many want to discuss, does this really mean the sea or is there other symbolic meaning to this word, which I do think there, there is. For the sea throughout the Old and New Testament always carried with it a sense of forbearing meaning that it was ominous. The sea was a place of darkness and often of trial, trouble, and tribulation. It was a place of uh, danger. It was a place of evil, of wickedness. But in John's case, it was a case of separation. As John was on the island of Patmos, what separated him from everyone else was the sea. So taken literally or figuratively, There is meaning to this, and it's the one detail that is given to us about this new heaven and earth. We know that the old has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, verse 2, new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, the anticipation of this new heaven and new earth is found throughout the Bible. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm one hundred two twenty five through 27. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you will that is, you, God, are the same, and your years have no end. Isaiah also anticipated this in Isaiah 65, 17-18. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be remembered, not remembered, or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Again, a chapter later in Isaiah, he writes, For there is a new heaven and a new earth that I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh will come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Peter speaks of this day when he writes in 2 Peter 3, 10-13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and in godliness. Waiting for the, and hastening the coming of the great day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they are burned. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that hope That longing, that anticipation, that expectation of a new earth, new heavens, which I believe is the celestial realm, not where God currently dwells, but the universe, the space that we are currently uh, umbrellaed by. New heavens, new earth are created, no longer tainted by death and by sin and suffering and weakness, cleansed of the scars of the judgment that have been found in the previous chapters of Revelation perfected once again. And it is the hope that is is waited for throughout the New Testament. Listen to what Paul writes about this in Romans 8, 18 through 23. For I consider that the suffering of this present times are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed unto us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are, have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies the new heaven, the new earth anticipated, waited for, predicted is now coming to pass this is what we should long for it is this moment, it is this hope, this promise that should always be on the forefront of our minds as we walk day by day through this earth, through this life. But then he moves on to a holy city. Listen to this in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband Earlier on in Revelation, the city of Jerusalem was mentioned and it was likened to Sodom and Egypt. That has all been done away with. That is no longer the case. I do believe that this is a place of dwelling where God's people will dwell with their God. Adorned as the bride of Christ herself, the church, it is further adorned here in the same way, meaning presented in such a way of splendor and glory. The most, um, m- the most marvelous experience you could have is seeing your bride for the first time adorned for her wedding. I still remember that day for myself as I waited up front in the church and the doors opened and there was Dina standing there with her father. I was amazed And I asked myself, what did I do? How did I ever deserve this? How did I ever, this is awesome. God, are you sure you got the right guy? But what a longing. And this new heaven, this new earth occupied by this city was also anticipated. And the city is called also holy, meaning it is pure, spotless before God as his people are also. And new it is not of the same, but it is new, and that new quality as the new heaven, as the new earth, are also new. Hebrews twelve twenty-two indicates, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable innumerable angels and festival gatherings. Galatians four twenty-six anticipated, but the Jerusalem above is free, she is our mother. And Philippians 3.20 and 21 remind us of our citizenship. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, but the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. Again, we talked about its arraignment, how it was adorned. Many people... Good scholars believe that this is simply describing the church. But New Jerusalem is spoken about in greater detail in 9 through 22, and we'll get into those details next week, where I do see a city, a dwelling place, and God's people dwelling within it with God, all found in the next chapter. We'll explore that next week together. But as this new city comes down for us to occupy, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, he goes on to remind us that this was the hope of those in the church of Philadelphia. Jesus said to them, Revelation three twelve through 13, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write him on the name of my God and on the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name, new name, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. David Gusick said something that I think we need to consider. Man has never known a community unmarred by sin. Adam and Eve only knew it for a limited time, that community atmosphere with God. But that community aspect in a larger context only came along after the fall itself. Here in the New Jerusalem, we have something totally unique, a sinless, pure community of righteousness, a holy city. That's something that I cannot imagine. Being in a place with all the brothers, all the saints of from all time, in a place where we can dwell along with God, that's the real aspect of all of this our eternal dwelling with God. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But in a context like none other ever experienced before since prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, a context where sin, death, decay is no longer relevant to the discussion. Pure community, pure communion, pure fellowship Think about that in and of itself. Nothing inhibiting in any way, shape, or form that interaction between man and God. It's a glorious thing to consider. Then John, as he proceeds into verse 3, begins to list the things that he heard after listing the things that he saw. And I heard in verse 3 a loud voice from the throne of heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is God has always desired to dwell and to interact with his creation in this pure manner. It all begins in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? Perfect fellowship, perfect relationship between God and man. Until the fall of man. Then that fellowship was changed. It was tainted. It was severed. And from that point forward, man has been born separated from God because of the sin nature that dwells within man. But from the beginning, God desired to dwell with man. After that point, seeing Noah through the flood, beginning a nation through the person of Abraham, leading us through the captivity in Egypt, the slavery in Egypt for 400 years, after Isaac and Jacob, and then down through Joseph. Then he raised one up to lead his people out of Egypt, to lead them to their own promised land, their own place in which they could dwell. And to lead them, he allowed them to create a tabernacle where Moses was allowed to interact with God in this specific, specific manner, and he was dwelling with his people in the regards of the tabernacle. Later, as you continue on through Joshua, and then to David, and then from David to his son Solomon, a temple was created there in Jerusalem once they got into their land. And the temple was then occupied by God as the Shekinah glory came down. Again, it was the dwelling place of God until Israel sinned and God departed. But then we come to the fourth expression of dwelling As it states in John's gospel that Jesus Christ came and tabernacled amongst us, dwelt amongst us. And even in that experience, in the first advent, as awesome as that would have been, to walk and to talk and to spend time with Jesus, something I would have enjoyed doing. But think about this. It's still in the context of a dying world, isn't it? The world is still dying. Sin still has its effect. Death still reigns. And the the perfection that was meant to be enjoyed is still inhibited. It's hampered. It's still limited. And then, of course, Christ dies, rises on the third day. And then Paul tells us, today the Spirit of God dwells in us. As he states in First Corinthians six, nineteen through twenty, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Listen to these words that Paul wrote in Ephesians two, nineteen through twenty two. So then let no longer the stranger and alien, but you are all fellow citizens with the saints And members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself bringing the cornerstone, being the cornerstone, excuse me, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now this this time that we are now looking at, this new heaven, this new earth, is a time for God to dwell with His people in the context of perfection. The way it was always meant to be. I look forward to that. I look forward to that. As Warren Worsby stated, he said, In both the tabernacle and the temple, the veil stood between men and God. That veil was torn in two when Jesus died, thus opening a new and living way for God's people. Even though God dwells in believers today by His Spirit, we still have not begun to understand God or fellowship with Him as we would like to. But one day, we shall dwell in God's presence and enjoy Him forever. Spurgeon said it this way, This is the greatest glory of heaven and the ultimate restoration of what was lost in the fall. I do not think the glory of Eden lay in its grassy walks or in the boughs bending with luscious fruit, but its glory lay in this, that the, God, that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, here was Adam's highest privilege, that he had companionship with the Most High. That's what we should be looking for in this new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of man with God uninhibited in the context of perfection once again. That's what we should be looking forward to. Now notice again the description. I I think this is interesting. He goes on in verse 4 to describe this place by what will not be there. Isn't that interesting? Instead of describing what it's like, which he'll get into a little bit more as we get into the end of 21 and into 22, but at first he wants us to understand what will not be there. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things, again, like the old heaven and old earth, have passed away. They are no more. If you look in 21 and 22, you will find 12 things that will not be found in the new heaven, the new earth, or the new Jerusalem. There will be no more sea. No more separation, no more wickedness, no more evil. Number two, there will be no more tears. Number three, no more death. Four, no more mourning. Five, no more crying. Six, no more pain. Seven, no more thirst. Eight, no more wickedness. Nine, no more temple. Ten, no more night. Eleven, no more closed gates. And number 12, no more curse because Christ's blood has forever lifted the curse. Twelve things that will not be in the new heaven and the new earth. Let's consider the words of verse 4 again. I often hear these read at funerals, describing the place that will be occupied by the individual who has died. Often, though, these words are used apart from the gospel. There is often never a consideration that to enter into this place we will discover very quickly that these individuals must be found in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the only individuals that will inherit these things. Otherwise, the second death awaits those who are apart from Christ. When I see no more tears in their eyes, just this week I saw something. That took me back, and I had to just stop for a moment. I just had to go and be by myself with the Lord. As I was studying, someone sent me an email, and there was a video attached. And in the video, there was this little child crying, starving, just weeping of hunger. Of thirst, and the little child then walked a little further, found some water which was nothing more than a mud puddle, and put his little face in that water to drink. Man. The next day I saw a person crucified by Isis on the balcony of a home, so he could be there as a warning to all Christians who were in that in that city that this is what waits Christians. I think about the elderly people of the United States of America that are continuously taken advantage of. This was the third story. As they lie in nursing homes each and every day, family don't come to visit them, churches don't reach out to them, A parent lying over the side of a bed holding the hand of their daughter or son who is going through chemotherapy to try and hopefully bring their cancer into remission. But he will wipe away every one of their tears from their eyes. How many times have we turned and looked and found another senseless death? A child walking home from school or one sitting in their living room simply watching their television after a drive-by shooting, the bullet going through the picture window and hitting the child and killing her. The senseless death. I think of that moment that Jesus Christ came to his friends Mary and Martha. And all were wailing at the death of Lazarus. And Jesus at that one moment of, we, of, uh, moment of emotional uh, exposure, meaning that John gives us a glimpse of this moment, he begins to weep and i believe that he began to weep because he now sees the effects of death upon his creation this was never meant to be guys this was never ever meant to be and as much as we would like to believe that our endeavors were going to change this world i fearful that we would never even just scrape the surface It doesn't mean we don't try, and it doesn't mean that we do not labor for the purposes of God and to feed the hungry and to minister to the weak and to take care of the orphans and to take care of the widows as the Scriptures encourage us and and command us to do. But let us know that things will not be perfect until this time. Until this time. As He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Can you imagine being one of those Christians at this time who is under the heavy weight of persecution? And even a persecuted Christian today, Pastor Saeed, he's sitting in an Iranian prison year after year, sometimes being brutally tortured simply because of his faith in Jesus Christ. It's one thing to listen to a pastor going through an experience like that, or even a man in Christ, but when it comes to women and children being physically persecuted, and let us use the word that is accurately describing what is happening to many Christians around the world today, they're being slaughtered for their faith in Jesus Christ. For there shall be no more, no more death, for the former things have been passed away. For John, standing there possibly on the island of Patmos, looking over the sea that separates him from the people at this moment, looking at this blessed hope, oh, what an encouragement to his heart it must have been to know that this is what waits for us. As Warren Worsby wrote, the eternal city is so wonderful that the best way John found to describe it was by contrast. No more are words that are used in the next two chapters over and over again. The believer who first reads this inspired book must have rejoiced to know that in heaven there would be no more pain, tears, sorrow, death for Many of their numbers had been tortured and slain. In every age, the hope of heaven has encouraged God's people in times of suffering. And then further promises given here in verse 5. Let's look together. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a promise. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are what? Trustworthy and true. You can take it to the bank. You can be confident that this is going to happen. There should be no ambiguity in your mind. A new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, wait for the people of God. And described there in verse 4, as tears and pain and suffering will be absent from the presence of His people. And he said to me, it is done, and it actually could be rendered, they have become, which is interesting. As one Greek scholar wrote, he said, when God declares it is done, however, he is pointing forward to a permanent condition that has fully arrived. Let me explain. Moreover, the Holy Spirit led John to use the perfect indicative tense to verify that God's promises are secure. He is expressing things that are yet future as if they were completed events with enduring results. Meaning he was so confident in what he was writing that this, even though it hasn't happened yet, is going to happen and you can be sure of that. It is done. They have become the old is gone, the new is here. Think about that in our personal lives. When it talks about our salvation in Jesus Christ, for the old has passed away and all things are brand new, for you are a new creation in Christ. It's the same process, though we are lingering as we are being sanctified day by day. That means being separated from the world day by day by the Holy Spirit and His Word, meaning we're coming out of the world and looking less like the world and looking more like Christ, being conformed into His image. But the old has been forgotten. It is no more. The new is ahead of us. That same anticipation. Chuck Swindoll said this. Think about it for a moment, he says. No more terminal diseases, hospitals, wheelchairs, or funerals. No more courts or prisons. No more divorce, breakdowns, or breakups. No more heart attacks, strokes, Alzheimer's, or debilitating illnesses. No more therapists, medication or surgery. No famines, plagues or devastating disaster. He is making all things new and he has it with an exclamation point. He is making all things new. One of my favorite heroes in the faith is D.L. Moody. And when I first became a pastor, I really gleaned a lot from Moody. I could really relate to him in many different ways. I found that he was a simple man like I consider myself a simple person. He was a shoe salesman that had a passion for God, and God used him greatly. And just after the Chicago fire had occurred, after the fire was extinguished, Moody ran to his home to discover what was left. His house was completely devastated by the Chicago fire. And someone came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, I've heard you've lost everything. And he responded, He says, What do you mean? Did I lose everything? I didn't lose everything. And the man said to him, I didn't realize that you were that wealthy and you had wealth elsewhere. And then he proceeded to open up his Bible to this gentleman and began to read verse 7. That he who overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. The temporal didn't matter to Moody, the eternal did. He judged his wealth not on the basis of his material possessions, but on his treasure stored in heaven and what God had for him for all eternity. It is that perspective that I hope that this passage will instill in your mind and in your heart that we should be looking forward. As he stated in verse 5 of our text, if you look there with me, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's putting his stamp on it. The beginning and the end to the thirsty... I will give from the spring of water without payment. And the one who conquers or overcomes will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. How does one overcome? It is a word that is used throughout the book of Revelation. And I think it must be defined if we're truly going to understand how we can overcome this world. The ruler of this world, the lusts of this world, the temptations of this world, etc. Well, in fact, John told us how we can overcome the world in his first epistle. The same John who wrote the book of Revelation, First John 5, 4-5, through 5, "...for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world." And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Think about that for a moment. Our faith is the catalyst that allows us to overcome the ruler of this world, the lusts of this world, the temptations of this world, and the wreckage of this world. Our faith in Christ. That faith must be placed in the promises of God, and one of those promises is this eternal dwelling with Him in the new heaven and the new earth. And this idea should govern our mind day by day. The only reason that Moody could look at his burnt out home and still rejoice is because he had that eternal perspective. This doesn't matter. What matters is what I have with God. It matters that the treasures that I have stored with him. That's an eternal perspective. The eternal perspective will allow us to momentarily suffer that we may eternally glorify God. That was Paul's passion, that he was willing to suffer. And he said, this present suffering pales in comparison of the glory that's going to be experienced once we get there. I don't think anyone's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, into the gates of heaven, into the throne room of God and say, God, do you know what I went through down there? It was horrible. The suffering, the pain. I think the moment we get there, we're going to be so blown away and amazed by God that all those things are going to be forgotten. That's what Paul is saying. The suffering, that's nothing What I go through today, that's nothing. Paul suffered. Read 2 Corinthians. Paul lists it for us, his resume. It's pretty impressive. I suffered in many different ways. All that pales in comparison to what yet is to come. I really, really believe that this is what's hampering and hindering so many Christians today in America, is that we're living for the moment rather than for eternity. We're being guided by instant gratification rather than storing up for our treasures in heaven. I think we need to re-examine our hearts and our minds to consider what is truly important for the eternal perspective. Notice what he says here too, to those who were thirsty. That they can come and it will be given to them as it states here in verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. Meaning that it is eternally open to those who desire. Spurgeon said something that really caught my eye and my attention when he said, What does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive, to take in the refreshing drink, and that is a, that's all that it is. A man's face may be unwashed, but yet he can drink. He may be a very unworthy character, but yet he can drink of water, and remove, it will remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkably easy thing, it is even more simply done than even eating. Those who thirst long for righteousness. Those who thirst and desire all that God has for them. You remember the promise that Jesus made to the woman at the well in John 4. He said to her, you can draw from this well day after day after day and you're going to thirst again, but I can give you living waters. And now that living water is available to us at any time with no payment. That's all been paid in the in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are eternally open to that fountain of living water. Think of that. For John, it would have been very easy to consider a man who has walked through the wilderness, possibly looking and waiting and anticipating and expecting water to possibly be over the next hill or mountain. If you look in the Old Testament, the journey paths, the routes that they took... Always, it was from well to well to well to well. That's the road that they traveled because they could be guaranteed that at the end of their travel there would be a well there waiting for them. Jesus says, now the wilderness is done. There is no more wilderness. It is now a luscious paradise. And the water is there for all who are thirsty. Just drink. There's no payment. I've already taken care of that, God says. Now, now, Just enjoy it. But there's a warning in verse 8. Though there is a heritage waiting for those who conquer and overcome, and that is, that heritage will be, I will be his God, he will be my son. But, verse 8, John reminds us even at this late hour in his writing of this book, but as for the cowardly, Meaning the one who is afraid to stand up for Christ in the face of persecution. The one who is willing to deny Him before man, therefore Christ denying Him before the Father. The cowardly, the faithless, the unbeliever, the detestable, the vile, that's what it means. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That is why we are doing what we are doing on Sunday morning, reminding people of the severity of sin. I'm very curious to see how many people come back this Sunday after last week. But many expressed their appreciation to me after service Sunday. I'm so glad you said what you said. I'm so glad you brought it up. It's, I've got to deal with that in my life. I've got to get that right with God. That's what it was meant to bring about. Why? People who practice these things are indicating to all of us that they are not in Christ. For one who is in Christ would not on a normal basis do these things continuously. It is possible, of course, for the Christian to sin and to fall and to make mistakes, but repentance is the avenue and the vehicle to forgiveness and return. And God's always willing and allowing to forgive us. If we confess our sins, He's willing and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, a promise that He gives us in His Word. But people who practice these things, regardless of the lip service that they may give God, regardless of their... Um, personal devotion to God if their life is characterized by these actions it is an indication that a new birth a rebirth has not taken place within them and he warns them that they will not be part of what God has for those who are in him for all eternity I'm going to close with this list that someone had compiled The Bible records the beginning, they wrote, of the world and the end of the world. The story of mankind from beginning to end. From the fall into sin to the redemption and God's ultimate victory over evil is found in the pages of the Bible. In Genesis, the sun is created, but in Revelation, no sun is needed for the light will be produced by Christ himself. We'll discover that next week. In Genesis, Satan is victorious, but in Revelation, Satan is defeated. In Genesis, sin enters the human race, but in Revelation, sin is banished forever. In Genesis, people run and hide from God. In Revelation, people are invited to live with God forever. In Genesis, people are cursed. In Revelation, the curse is removed. In Genesis, tears are shed with sorrow of sin But in Revelation, all sin, tears, and sorrow are gone. The garden and the earth are cursed in the book of Genesis, where in Revelation, God's city is glorified and the earth is made new. Paradise is lost in Genesis, but paradise is regained in Revelation. People are doomed to death in Genesis, but death is defeated and believers live forever with God for all eternity in the book of Revelation. The book ends, the beginning and the end. Remember what Jesus said to you this evening. These things are trustworthy and true. It is done. John writing these things beforehand as if they had already taken place to absolutely assure his readers of their certainty. The certainty of a new heaven and a new earth.